Are you interested in attending a Nine Marks event in your area? Visit www.ninemarks.org forward slash events for more information about our upcoming events, including workshops and conferences. Hi, I'm Ryan Townsend, Executive Director of Nine Marks. Our vision is simple, churches that reflect the character of God. In light of that, Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches. To that end, we pray that this Nine Marks audio message will benefit both you and your local church. Listen, learn, and join the conversation. It's February 23rd, 2012. We're in Washington, D.C. I'm Jonathan Lehman, Editorial Director for Nine Marks and a member of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Welcome to this Nine Marks Leadership Interview. Today we have with us Dr. Hunter Powell. Hunter is an Associate Pastor of Guilford Baptist in Sterling, Virginia, husband to Laura, father of three children, Whitfield, Hudson, and Kate, and the author of The Dissenting Brethren, and the Power of the Keys, 1640 to 1644, a dissertation which was just approved last spring by University of Cambridge. Thank you for being with us. Hannah. Good to be here, Jonathan. And we also have Dr. Mark Dever. Dr. Dever, why am I sitting in this chair conducting this interview? Because you made me move. I wanted to sit there. But... Okay, why am I leading? <clears throat> because you are on? an expert on congregationalism, and Hunter has written a long and careful dissertation on what some Christians in the 1640s understood about what Jesus had done in authority he had given to the local church. And because he has looked at that so carefully historically, and you, Jonathan, have thought about that so much theologically, as you can tell if you read your book, Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love, I thought you would be a natural one to lead us through this conversation with Hunter. Well, it's certainly been fun, Hunter, since you got back having these conversations in which you're coming with a historical perspective, I'm coming with more of a systematic, exegetical <clears throat> perspective as we get in some of these robust and loving yes loving indeed sparring matches and mark you'd be proud of hunter he is he's always quick to use that line i've heard you use over the years jonathan i'm only standing with what christians have said for two thousand years <laughs> you go ahead and think what you want to think it's always useful to elucidate and shut down argument uh -huh. right. why is that not just a snarky comment but in fact a pastoral comment well, you, you can use it snarkily, I'm sure, but I think what I at least often or usually mean when I am using it is we're not the first ones to have thought about this. Praise God. Other people have believed Scripture is true and has thought about, have thought about these issues. And while we, we're not ob obligated to believe any of them, we want to take them each to the Word. Uh, they can. We shouldn't be surprised that they can be helpful to us. Just to know you a little bit better, Hunter, give us in about a minute your polity autobiography. How, my, how'd you get here, polity-wise? How did I get here, polity-wise? I became a Christian at 10th Presbyterian Church, and where the pastor of that church introduced me to Mark. Uh -huh. who How old were you? I was 21, 22, okay. somewhere in there. Uh, came to Capitol Hill. Mark convinced me to be a Baptist. Then I went to Westminster Seminary, which um, made me more Baptistic by the time I was done. Explain. Uh, I'd rather not explain that. He's always been a country. <laughs> country. Uh, great seminary. had a wonderful time there. Um, then did some individual studies under Carl Truman on Congregationalists um, and the Dissenting Brethren who were the Congregationalists at the Westminster Assembly. They're called the Dissenting Brethren because they entered their dissent against the Presbyterian majority at the Westminster Assembly. Um, I worked on their uh, Savoy Declaration of Faith and Order as my master degree at Cambridge, which was about 15 years after the Westminster Assembly. So my PhD was backing up and seeing where these congregational men who included Thomas Goodwin, Jeremiah Burroughs, Philip Nye, and William Bridge, and Cedric Simpson, uh, where they stood on the ecclesiastical spectrum as Britain, uh, England, moved from a period of nonconformist debates um, which included Marx's uh, uh, person he studied, Richard Sibbs, and the Puritans into the period of revolution um, in which uh, the king of England, Charles I, was at war with his parliament, largely over matters of, well, basically over matters of the church, um, which gave us the Westminster Assembly. And so I looked at the Congregationalist at the Westminster Assembly, which ultimately produced the Westminster Confession of Faith. And at this point, you are at a Baptist church. 
So a convinced congregationalist. Yes. Right. Now, your dissertation asks us to get into the weeds here a little bit of church polity. Uh, and in fact, I think in this interview, we're going to be a little bit more congregationalist, small c, than we typically are. Mark, is Nine Marks a congregationalist ministry? Well, I'm, a, I'm certainly a congregationalist. Not all the people who write for us are congregationalists. Uh, it's, I don't think we push that. We do talk about it some because so many of us are Baptists and we think there's, it's an implication uh, but much of what we say, you could translate, more of what we say generally, you could translate with no problem into a less than congregational church. Mm-hmm. It's exactly because we're on this conversation that this could be one of the least accessible for some people who generally like nine marks and use it. Because I think the three of us, anyway, whatever differences we may have, we do all have the share the assumption that Jesus gave the power to admit into membership to the Lord's Supper and to put out of membership from the Lord's Supper uh, to, to the local congregation. Yep. Should Presbyterians and Anglicans and others keep listening at this point? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I try to do as I look to the Congregationalists is show how much commonality there actually was on many issues between the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists at the Westminster Assembly. One thing that came out of the dissertation was how many different types of Presbyterian polities were on offer at the Westminster Assembly. And one of the points I make is the Scottish Presbyterians, the celebrated George Gillespie, Samuel Rutherford, were actually much closer to men like Thomas Goodwin and Jeremiah Burroughs, the Congregationalists, than we have typically thought. And that was because of their emphasis on power residing at the local particular church for matters of excommunication and so forth, which we can get into. And one of the things that I thought you showed very clearly in your dissertation was the distinction between different kinds of Congregationalists. So, for example, John Owen was greatly affected by John Cotton, right. but he didn't exactly mimic John Cotton's congregationalism. True. Well, before we get too far into the weeds, let me ask, is this a conversation that honestly is even worth having? Um, a prominent theologian whom I respect and who I think we'd all affirm is playing for the exact same team as we are, writes this in a book. He, he says, for years I actively avoided teaching the required course on ecclesiology. And not only because it was paired with eschatology, no, I wanted no part of a course whose syllabus seemed to consist of a hit parade of controversies, a series of the doctrines that divide. And he says in a footnote, I'm thinking of issues such as the mode of baptism, the role of women in ministry, the place of charismatic gifts, the nature of ordination and church polity. Nothing, he says, is more depressing than constant family squabbles. But these days, he goes on to say, he's happy to teach it because he's, quote, decided to focus not on the areas of disagreement that bedevil evangelicalism, but rather on the essential core of the doctrine of the church, namely on understanding the basic nature and the basic mission of the church. Mere ecclesiology, he calls it. And what is mere ecclesiology? It's it's one that's content to set aside the external matters of polity and practice because, he says, the church is the people of the gospel, a people assembled by the gospel in order to proclaim the gospel. Now, I mean, that's what we all want, right? I mean, we, we all want to be a, a people gathered by the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. I mean, isn't he right? How, how would the dissenting brethren, as you as you call them, have responded to this, this theologian? Well, I think we'd all agree that issues of sal- salvation and soteriology are of primary importance in the church. But the way he articulates it is ecclesiology plays way second fiddle to soteriology, which these divines, the Puritan divines, did not think in that way. When they started their debates at the Westminster Assembly, they started with the church. Because if we were going to manifest ideas of salvation, repentance, loving one another, edifying God, edifying each other and glorifying God, that was going to happen through the church. And those same men that spent so much time writing the Westminster Confession about issues of covenant of grace, covenant of works, things that we celebrate as reformed Christians, spent just as much time exegeting scriptures on polity as they did with soteriology and theology. They took it really seriously. And they said, if Christ is ordaining a church, if Christ is telling us how to order a church, if Paul is praising the Colossian church for their faith and their order, then perhaps we should take seriously how God wants his church to look. So to dismiss it as squabbles misses the fact that they squabbled because it was important. And Christ instituted it. And Christ instituted it. I would say that regardless of how generous we can be in the estimates of the intentions of the person you've just quoted, Uh what what that quotation is is a grotesque subversion of the authority of Scripture. It's a a giving of the church over to pragmatism. 
It's saying the very things that the pastors listening to this interview have to decide every day, every week, not about the two natures of Christ or what our adoption is in him, but about what we're going to do at church, that none of those things are addressed by Scripture. Mm -hmm. And I reject that as effectively a secession from the authority of Scripture. I don't think that's true, and that's not what Christians in the past have thought, and I think at this point, though they're not always, at this point, I think the Christians in the past have been wiser than even the, the wise brother who wrote that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's subverting Scripture. Would you also say it's putting the gospel at risk? Ultimately, because if the if the reason Jesus set up the local church is in part to display and protect the gospel, then in undermining protections that he put in place, You'll ultimately undermine things. So I often use the example of the of the poverty of the church being the prongs that holds the diamond of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And if when you when you pick at those, you know that there may not be any apparent damage when things are going well, but as soon as things begin to become unhealthy, you can see that the damage that can be done quickly. It's precisely our polity which preserves the church from generation to gen- generation. Not merely, but it's part of it. Okay. Uh, in contrast to this contemporary example. Uh, Hunter, I found your descriptions of how seriously these guys took polity fascinating. You write in the introduction, what may seem like ecclesiastical warfare in the Westminster Assembly to the modern reader was exactly what these divines were trained to do. And you, you described one such divine. He was a proselytizer for his own opinions, eager to divide truth from error, to best his adversary here and now to secure acceptance of his ideas by his disciples and contemporaries. And then a few pages later, the apologetical, I can't even say it, apologetical apologetical narration has been described as a declaration of ecclesiastical warfare. I mean, ecclesiastical warfare, not a bit strident. When people look at these debates in the 17th century and they see Presbyterians debating Congregationalists um, and they see someone argue of a polity, they assume they were enemies. Mm-hmm. When actually they were trained to debate that, and they wanted to isolate truth from error, and truth in the church and how a church was structured was of fundamental importance to them. Well, and these were not denominational wars like you know a, a Methodist and a Baptist in the South arguing about whose church is better. These are all Anglicans. There, there aren't multiple denominations. There's one denomination, and we're arguing. We're various parties trying to understand the truth, trying to decide how the church should be structured. So it, it's, it's just a very different kind of thing than the way it, it strikes our ears, I think, So today. when these debates started, the bishop ran the, di- the diocese, which had several parishes or local churches. And to them, the bishop was not what Scripture described as an overseer, which they saw as a presbytery, um, multiple elders over one particular church. Well, the, they Presbyterians. The Presbyterians and the Congregationalists. Um, what they saw fundamentally problematic with a bishop over multiple churches was the bishop had been separated from the flock he was meant to feed. So this idea that one man could control multiple churches was anathema to them. And that's part of the reason why they had to redefine the church around the local body. They would later deal with issues of presbytery over multiple churches. But they had to reunite the pastor and his people mm-hmm. as how to glorify God, how to shepherd the flock that you're an overseer of. That sounds like a relevant conversation for today. Yeah, no doubt. Well, we'll maybe get to that in a minute. Um, Mark, am I right in thinking there's not been many books written on polity in the last hundred years? Mm, And if so, why is that? Probably more than we think, but certainly none that have gained any particular popularity. Why don't we read books on polity now? Because I think, at least here in America, I think we're essentialists. Uh We evangelicals care about what's essential for salvation, and if it's not essential, we assume it's unimportant. And polity very squarely falls in that non-essential category. I read you a quote from one brother a few moments ago. Here's another quote from Carl Truman. The problem with the way evangelicalism now functions is it has weakened the church because it requires the marginalizing of ecclesiastical distinctives, such as views on baptism and church government. Evangelicalism and its institutions cannot, in theory, replace the church. Furthermore, the whole problem of accountability is a hardy perennial problem for parachurch organizations, from seminaries to academic fellowships like the Evangelical Theological Society, maybe even Nine Marks. Uh, The problem is that, in practice, evangelical institutions have come to supplant the church, even though they are not designed to fulfill that role. For some, they become the key theaters of action, the forms in which little fish can become big shots, and the deviant and heretical can flourish without proper accountability. For others, they become the primary centers of Christian identity, the reason why they become evangelicals first and Presbyterian or Baptist or Pentecostal only second. 
Is this a fair description of the evangelical landscape? Yeah. What are the dangers of that? Well, it, it goes back to that old problem, my mission with bishops. It's the desire to separate yourself from authority, because the further you can remove yourself from an authoritative figure, whether it's your pastor or an elder or from the church, the less accountable you are. It's a way to hide. Yeah. So often when I'm at conferences and I'm meeting people, introducing people, the piece of data I want after their name is what church they're a member of. You know, so if it's Carl Truman who te- teaches at Westminster Seminary, I care far less about what his day job is. Mm then what church he's a member of. I, I want to know, uh, you know, in his case, what Presbyterian, but I, I want to know whose authority he's under. Well, that's why also in, in the Nine Marks articles that we publish on the web, we'll always try to put a person's church membership in the author's note. You know, not just he's a professor of here and he's written these books. He's also a member of this church, just trying to tie our identity back into. Because that, that church is the first line of accountability for problems. I mean, I, we've had this conversation before in other interviews If with the uh, the problems that had happened in the Southern Baptist Convention in the middle of the 20th century over theological unbelief. Uh, Those had to be taken care of through messy political maneuvers for 30 years, when if the churches had been healthier, the Baptist churches uh, around, you know, employees of entities like seminaries would have simply simply excommunicated people who were heretics. Mm -hmm. And the the seminaries then would not have been able to have employed people who were not members of Baptist churches, Mm -hmm. and it would have been taken care of. But because the Baptist churches had become unhealthy, uh, we we had to go through a a much different, long, torturous process. And even then, the victory that that was secured for truth and right, insofar as that's what it was, is no more secure than the health of the church's around it. So let's say you've had a bunch of churches leave, effectively, uh, the SBC who didn't believe in the bodily resurrection, or we can go through all kinds of doctrines. So now you have just the churches remaining who believe that, but if they are as uncareful of their church membership going forward as they have been in the past, the seminaries will be no more healthy. Mm -hmm. It'll be a matter of a generation or two before they're gone again. Mm -hmm. So the, the churches must be recovered uh, if the gospel is to be safeguarded. Mm-hmm. Well, something I was thinking about over over lunch in, in our discussion together, though, these guys, the dissenting brethren, who, again, we'll get to in a, in a minute here, were looking out at a, quote-unquote, Christianized Europe, a state-established Europe, right? And so, of course, they're looking at these matters of polity and taking care in that because everybody claimed, at least, to be a Christian, and so they had to do the careful work of drawing lines between true professions, not true professions, and so forth. Well, we're looking at a, at a, a secular America, right, or, or Europe today, and we're more concerned with things, well, I don't want to say that, uh, evangelism seems to be pitted against some of these very questions and polity. And just kind of going off of, of what you just said, Mark, why, why is it that uh, how we do evangelism and our success in evangelism or the importance of evangelism so much very tied to finding our first identity in the local church and not in the seminary or not in some other evangelical institution? Why are these things wed together? You understand my question? I don't think so. I mean, I understand that in the past, like in Hunter's period, this is so, these polity questions are so burning, not because they're simply more faithful to Scripture, but because politically they were the established church. Right. So you you had to deal with them, and and it it involved everyone's property, everyone's everything. So it was a huge... And they were keenly aware of the dangers of a national church. I mean, it was Charles I, after all, who was enforcing the prayer book in England and enforcing the prayer book in Scotland, which necessitated Scottish invasion of England. So they saw the dangers of a monarch enforcing what they perceived to be a false polity, a remnant of Catholic ecclesiology that was left in place um, after the English Reformation. So they saw the dangers of the state not being wise in how they put the church together. And they didn't see how you could evangelize a nation if it wasn't done through the church. Okay, well, it's, it's that last point that I'm, try, I'm trying to get at there. So I'm, I'm putting myself in the shoes of the average listener. And I'm thinking... I wonder if the average listener is still here. <laughs> Charles I, and this is a hot topic. <laughs> I'm wondering, why do you guys care so much about this stuff? Because evangelism is what counts. Can't we be a little bit more flexible on some of these matters for the sake of evangelism? But where are you getting from Scripture? Evangelism is what counts. Uh, Great Commission. Uh, That's all that the Bible has to say about well, evangelism. Yeah, I would just say that you know, in, in denominations that give awards to churches that have the most baptisms, 
they're basically funding carnal ambition potentially on the part of pastors to appear successful so that they put pressure on more people, more more theologically distant people, younger people, more manipulable people to make some kind of decision so that they are baptized, so that they can feel that somehow they've obeyed Christ's command there, or they can report a, 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 an aggregate of statistics. Look, we have the largest number in our county or our state of baptisms. And all of those things flow into this conversation of polity because it, and, and what a healthy church is. Because if, if we're not careful, some of the things that we mean to encourage evangelism actually end up hurting evangelism. So I, I think a lot of big megachurches that I think may be proud about how many people they evangelize are actually making it harder for the gospel in their areas because they are baptizing people way prematurely. And they are making people who really don't know Jesus, whose lives don't change at all, who give no evidence of being regenerate, they're bringing them into the membership of their church. They are calling them Christians. They're letting them know they think that they are Christians. They're not confronting them on inconsistencies and unrepentant sin in their lives. They're letting them go out circulate in public as people who are saying that, yeah, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And it's their own polities that, in a sense, help them to be unable to deal with this problem. So their polities are vitally related to, it's not the whole issue, mm -hmm. but it is vitally related to why, to, to what makes evangelism even harder. Mm -hmm. So can we say in a sentence, good evangelism depends in part on good polity? A little stronger than I would put it, but it's certainly something in that direction. Plays I mean, an important role. If you emphasize evangelism to the point of all we want to do is convert people. Fabulous. Great. That's a primary importance in the church, obviously. But then they have to go to a church. And the Bible goes on to talk about a submit to your leaders. If they only understand that to be to listen to them on a Sunday morning because they were taught the gospel once and the relationship you need to have with your leaders is just merely hearing them teach about Jesus every Sunday, then you've had a fundamental misunderstanding of what Hebrews is after, what Paul's is after, Paul is after when he talks about the church. And they do move on to writing letters to churches and telling them how to order themselves in churches. So there has to be some value in the right ordering of the church. Paul spends a lot of time talking about the church. You're going to have a very thinned out idea of what the local church is. Yeah. Brother, you've done a lot of hard and good work in the weeds. Certainly hard. Uh, on on, on <laughs> oh, in this dissertation, good. and and I want I want to descend here a little bit into the weeds. All right. So if, if you've we're not already there. we're not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. If if you've already tuned out, you're gonna here we go. We're gonna get into the weeds. It's it's October twelfth, sixteen forty three. No doubt, a dark and drizzly English day. The British Parliament sends an order in joining an assembly of divines. What's a divine? Puritan, a uh, scholar of the faith. Theologian. 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 Sends uh, uh, an assembly of divines to, quote, speedy take in hand the discipline and the liturgy of the church. And then you write, the House of Lords ordered that the divines to find the, quote, discipline and government that is, quote, most agreeable to God's word. So here's Parliament asking these theologians. Parliament is telling the Westminster Assembly, get moving. We need the church settled. And as long as we don't have it settled, this nation will be unstable. And they say they want one that is near in agreement with the Church of Scotland and other Reformed churches abroad to be settled in this church instead and in place of the present prelactic, prelatic, prelatic. government. You'll define that for us. Prelates of bishop. So it's just bishop government which the parliament is resolved to be taken away. Why, why were they trying to get rid of the what they had in place? So the Church of England, which was in place, so the, they wanted something different. Yeah, the heirs of Charles I, who was king of England in this period, or leading up to it, was he was, as I said earlier, enforcing the prayer book, which are issues of bowing before the cross, or things that aren't in scripture. You all talked about it earlier in the vestments controversy. Um, which people were saying, you can't tell me, force me to do something that I'm not forced to do in Scripture. Well, Charles wasn't known for making the wise decisions at the right times, so he continued to force this, and Parliament would not tolerate it anymore. Um, so what eventually happened, long story short, is war broke out, and the king, as the titular head of the Church of England, when he leaves London... The church leaves with him. Mm -hmm. They also begin to see the reason why there are so many errors in the church is that a corrupt bishop like Archbishop Laud or Bishop Bren can force – as long as they're overseeing pastors and churches, they can arbitrarily fire them for disobeying the prayer book. Mm -hmm. 
So Parliament recognizes it's not just the king that's the problem, it's the church that he leads. Scotland had a very good, robust Presbyterian church by this point, and they invited the Scots to come down to the Westminster Assembly to help out in defining a new church. But the goal was if you were going to have a godly society, a godly nation with Christians who want to serve and glorify their Savior, it was going to happen through the church. So Parliament recognizes we no longer have the church of bishops. We need a new church. Hence, the Westminster Confession is trying to decide, what are we going to create? Is it going to be a national church with congregational churches in it? Is it going to be a Presbyterian church uh, based on Scottish Presbyterianism or something else? And Hunter, you said that Westminster Assembly was actually a disruptive moment uh, that broke into the effort to unite the godly. You, You actually kind of, in your work, you have a kind of in that sense, a negative assessment of the assembly. Well, I have a very positive assessment in terms of the theology handed down to us in the confession is fabulous, and we all benefit from it. Um, but the more precisionist you get in church polity for these divines, the more divisive it's going to be. Because on any number of issues, they may des- decide they dissent on what an elder can or cannot do. But didn't they have to make decisions about those kind of things if they the did. church needed to have some polity to operate by? Sure, and that's why the Westminster Confession is a, is a compromised document. Well, one of the central places, it seems, of, of disagreement is around a couple of scriptural texts and the keys of the kingdom. Uh, let, me, let me read those texts uh, briefly here. Uh, Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then the key verse, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And the word keys doesn't happen again, but but that same binding and loosing is mentioned again in Matthew 18, where after uh, a person is confronted in their sin, and they're not responding, they're not repenting of their sin, he says, tell it to the church, and if he doesn't listen to the church, treat him as you would a Gentile and tax collector. And then verse 18 of Matthew 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And, and Thomas Goodwin, one of these dissenting brethren, calls this the substratum of all church government. What does that mean? Why is this so important? Through Peter... In one way or another, Christ is founding his church. This is the first time we hear church mentioned. Christ is founding his church, and that is the general commission of a new church, a new set of keys given to Peter. Uh, we go to Matthew 18 to see how that's further defined in terms of the local church. Now, the important, the important, I think, essential thing for Congregationalists particularly, although for other divines as well, is that the way we know that the church is being defined here is that we're dealing with issues of excommunication, binding and loosing, which is the highest power a church has. So when Christ founds the church, he does that by giving them the power to bind and loose. So we are alerted to the fact, if we can isolate where the power to bind and loose is located, then we've isolated what the church is. And by that you mean excommunication. Most specifically, excommunication. Which is the highest power a church has, given to it on earth. And you want to explain why that's the highest power a church has? To hand someone over to Satan. There's no more fearful and dreadful task. So is that affecting it, as in a Roman Catholic understanding, or acknowledging and recognizing? Acknowledging and recognizing with a goal of winning back. Well, I've likened it to the state's power of the sword. Whoever has the power of the sword to end a life has, by definition, the most central, highest power in in a nation. If I have power of the sword, everything else is underneath that, right? If I can take your life. And I think in the same way, whoever has the power of excommunication, removing you from church membership, removing you from your status in the the citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, everything else is going to beneath that. So in this month of October, when they debate this verse, there's a lot of questions who Peter is. Right. Because obviously he's a representative figure, much like Adam is representative of the human race. They would see Peter as representing the church. You say there's five different ways of interpreting Peter. Yeah, I think for right now there's only a few that I need to mention here. But one was that Peter simply was representing the apostles, which did have a supernatural and extraordinary gift from Christ. There's also some that believe, some Presbyterians that believed that Peter was an apostle and apostles were forerunners of elders. Therefore, if you could say all church power i.e. the keys, were given just to Peter as he stood in the place of elders, mm-hmm. then you go down the Presbyterian road. All church power rests in the elders 
alone. Mm -hmm. Therefore, when elders of our Presbyterian friends meet at Presbytery, it doesn't matter if the people are there because all church power rests in the elders. So when they're at Presbytery together, they're still a church. They have the Lord's Supper. They have the Lord's Supper. Have church power, will travel. Um, there was another view that Peter had just given his confession of faith. You know, he just confessed Jesus is the Christ, and then Christ gave him the keys. So there's an argument that many Congregationalists have that therefore all believers inherently have the power of the keys or all church power. Now that's the independence. That would be an independent view. Um, what was called independency in this in the, period right. of time. Um, the Congregationalists that I studied say it's impossible to know. I mean, all of those things surely must be included. Apostles exercise extraordinary gifts. Elders have unique gifts. The people are involved. Therefore, you've got to go to Matthew 18. And the important thing about Matthew 18, I think for us as Congregationalists, with trying to draw us out of the weeds a little bit, is if, if we understand excommunication to be the highest power a church has, then if we isolate Matthew 18 to say, tell the church that we have to believe, and we go to 1 Corinthians 5, where the people join in the excommunication process, then we have to understand the people, in some measure, are partaking in the highest power a church has. And you can't dismiss that readily and say, the people have no role in the church. The people are already involved in the most fearful and awesome task a church has. Therefore, you must believe the people are involved in church government. Uh, you present John Cotton, who, the New, though, the New England divine, though he was not at Westminster, presented the best example of the Congregationalists' views in his essay on the keys of the kingdom. Is that correct? And he he, he presents a middle way between two positions. Yep. Between extreme independency, which the people are, you say, just have you all, say the power. all the people or the people have the keys, all the power. Between that and, on the other hand, Presbyterians who say only elders, the elders have the, have the keys, and he would say therefore. The elders and people are the subject of all church power together. Right. Okay, we've been in the weeds. We're going to go one level deeper here. Are you ready? One level deeper. Cotton's <laughs> oh, way of congregational churches cleared? I don't know, but we're going to that talk about how he, oh, no, he explained the keys, okay? As, as I understand it, he, he says, okay, I'm giving you the church. Or Jesus gives the keys to the church, but there's several keys yep. within the keys, right? It's like it's like a keychain, I guess, and there's there's several of them hanging on it. And uh, there's the key of knowledge, which all believers have. So picture a you know a, a, a tree, kind of an organic tree. So you have you have the key of knowledge on the one side, and over here you have the key of power. And then we're gonna we're gonna divide the key of power, the key of order. And what does it mean? Sure you what, go here? what does it mean that every New Testament prof has just like tuned out right now? Yeah, precisely. Well, I think this is important for understanding the difference between an elder authority. And congregational authority. Okay. And I we think can try to have this conversation here. Where can we have it? <laughs> Go ahead, man. That's what I'm saying. Um, key of, you have the uh, key of power, and that divides into key of liberty and the key of authority. And the yep. key of liberty, you say, belongs to the congregation, and the key of authority belongs to the elders. Is that basically well, correct? Well, Cotton would say that, and the, the John Cotton's writing out of Boston in New England, and the Westminster divines uh, would largely agree with that. They wouldn't agree with every phrase. But they do latch on to this concept that the people and the elders each have each have unique roles in the church when they join together to make a church decision. Now, as, as, as I understand it, he says you need both elders and congregation together yes. to make like hiring pastors, excommunication. excommunication. So it's almost like in one of those movies, Nuclear Submarine, you have to have two guys turning their key at once. Yes, and that's yeah. that's, that's precisely. I think. Uh, you're right. The whole. I don't think, I don't think they equate to a nuclear bomb going off. But. <laughs> no, but you need two people simultaneously, as it were, turning their key for something to be. Sure, they would also use judge and jury as an example, although it doesn't really replicate itself in our modern sense of that word. But for them, the judge, i.e., the elders, would have would have investigated the matter beforehand, will guide the court in its decisions. But no decision can be made properly without the jury also listening to the case, deliberating, and making a decision in conjunction with the with the well, judge. But if, those, if those two hands come into conflict, it's the people's hand that wins. Well, that's, that's, that's where I have questions. Let, let, me, let me read that example. You, uh, I, I wrote that down, Hunter. He says, the jury by their verdict, as well as the judge by his sentence, do both of them judge the same malefactor, the same bad guy? The jury's verdict is but an act of popular liberty, and the judge, it is an act of his judicial authority. 
Therefore, the church's power to bind and loose were only in their right to consent, concur, and question what the elders had done in private. The judge and the jury cannot act independently of each other, and yet the state charged them to fulfill the distinct functions. W- would you agree with that statement, Mark, that the, that the jury, which is the congregation, cannot act independently of the judge, which is the elders? I think that's manifestly false in Scripture because in Galatians 1, 2 Timothy 4, I mean, we probably think of other places, in, in those exceptional times when the uh, teacher goes off the rails, uh, the congregation is held responsible. And Mark, Mark wouldn't be disagreeing with John Cotton on this because John Cotton would agree with that, but he would just say it's disorderly. You asked, can they not do something? I would something? agree it's exceptional. Um, so it would be a disorderly way of doing things in exceptional circumstances. Yeah, I hope I never live to see that yeah. here at CHBC. No, what, what they're trying to argue for here is that, the, you know, we, I, I, after living in England for four years, I've come back and realized there's this concept out there called elder rule. Mm-hmm. Um, which I was unfamiliar with, and which you mean as distinguished from elder led. Yes, yeah. which I so I'm actually fine using the word rule because it, the Bible uses the word rule. But if you mean by that that therefore elders rule without the people, then that's not what these guys are after at all. But when they but what they're trying to say is when the Bible talks about elders have authority and they have an ability to rule, that there's something there's something in that that we should respect and the people should submit to that because the bible talks about submitting to your leaders that does not mean the people have no role or power either and the elders do not have it absent the people so if we have a spectrum with el- the way we define it today sure. elder rule in which final rule belongs to the elders yeah and elder led in which final authority belongs to the congregation but the elders typically lead out yeah right Am I right in thinking that these guys are, in fact, though congregationalists, somewhere in between? And I'm, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of this quote. Well, that these guys would vary. Yeah, precisely. You mean John Cotton? You mean John let's, Cotton? Let's go with this. John Cotton for a second. He, he uh, you describe him saying, uh, because the people were weak and unskillful in comparison to the elders whom Christ had gifted, Christ has not only placed a directing power but a b- binding power in the elders. In that way, the people could do nothing without the elders. Well, I don't think you but, would say it that strong. He can't mean nothing. Yeah, he doesn't. I mean, there's more to John. There's, that's certainly citing one aspect of John Cotton. He would certainly readily say that what you can't have is elders acting independently okay. of people. And you can't have people acting independently of elders. That, that God talks about churches being elders and saints together. And that a right, when, when Paul praises a church for faith and order, clearly God wants order in the church. So the, the response would be, so you're saying 3,000 people can make an excommunication decision without elders. That would certainly be erring on disorderly and something I think you would hope you would never see. But when, the, when Paul commands us to have elders and the elders have an authority, there has to be something to that that we need to answer for. Now, people have gone off the rails when they say, well, it's just that means the people have no say. It's not true. The elders only have any authority with and alongside the people. But it is an authority they have. So let's let's pull it up out of the weeds here and just try to, try to put this in our own words. So pastors li- li- listening are trying to figure out, okay, what, what authority do I have as a pastor? Sure. And church members listening are thinking, what authority do I have as a church member? Let's, in our own words, maybe with these guys just kind of staring over our shoulders, how would you answer the question, what authority does an elder have and what authority does the church have? Hunter, you're the one who's just studied the neat categories. Yeah, I mean, they would sim- – as, as I said earlier, they want to protect the fact when the Bible commands elders rule well. No, I, no, about- I, didn't, I didn't ask no, – we're, we're putting them aside. How would you define right. the, the authority an elder has? We're moving from history to systematic sure. at this point. The, 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 the authority elders have versus the authority a congregation has. I wouldn't use verses. I would say the authority elders have in conjunction with the people. Okay. Um, I've, and I think it's a legitimate authority that when the elders make a decision and they, de- and they decide something, the people should normally follow their elders because God has gifted them with an ability to rule. There's not, there's not some abstract, capricious reason for having elders. The elders are meant to guide and lead the church. But that doesn't mean the church also shouldn't be the final arbiter with the elders of any decision you make. If we've already established, and I agree with this, the excommunication belongs to the people and the elders, to the whole church, then you can't just dismiss the people's role in church government out of hand in favor of the elders. Mark, how would you define Follow them or replace them. Congregation should follow or replace the elders. But they have the authority to finally... More than authority, they have the responsibility to. But you would consider that a pretty... 
awesome power to take on. Yes, you don't do so it arbitrarily out of popularity. Out of that's what right. You, like, that's like, right. Clearly, they would have the, a clear violation. Yes, and I think it was abused, say, in the famous case of Edwards being sure. fired. So I think the congregation had a formal right to do that, but I think it was a, an abuse of that right uh, when they did it. So I don't expect normally in, in the course of a life you're going to see that. But certainly in the, in the lifetime of a congregation, uh, we know that the Ephesian church was going to be subjected to this from what the Lord prophesied through Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 um, and what the Lord prophesied to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 through Paul. So wolves are going to come. It's the elders' job to protect it. If the elders don't protect it but they become part of the wolves, then the last line of defense is the congregation. And the elders need to, in humility, prepare the congregation to understand they have that kind of responsibility so that if I ever need to be fired, I can say Galatians 1.8, look, if I come and preach you a doctrine, a gospel, other than that which you've accepted, you know, let me be accursed and anathema and don't receive my teaching. So the congregation's not going to exercise its authority very often. Well, it exercises authority all the time. I like some of the language Hunter was using. It exercises authority all the time in conjunction with the elders. But it's not self-leading every time it admits or takes someone out of membership. Okay. Um, uh, and when it recognizes an officer in the church, an, a new elder. And not to push this judge-jury analogy too far, mm. but it is helpful to think of a judge who investigates things beforehand, who does the legwork, and who shepherds the jury in their decision-making process. I think that's fine in a healthy way a church runs. Would it be fair to distinguish the two types of authority by saying that the elder's authority is a persuasive counsel authority and that the congregation's authority is an effectual binding authority, or would you say that's overly simplistic? Do you mean congregation absent elders? I assume you mean generally in concert with elders. Uh, let's say in general, in <clears throat> concert, but when pushed to the mat, ultimately the congregation. In other words, can, the el can an elder, Mark, senior pastor of the church, can you say to a member of your church, I bind you, I loose you? And that is effectually done apart from the congregation doing that. Well, by bind or loose, you mean accept you into membership or put you out of membership? No. Right. If by bind or loose, you simply mean approve or disapprove of doctrine, you know, what somebody is believing or doing or teaching. No, I can individually certainly do that by my teaching. Mm -hmm. Is that a persuasive? That's persuasive. Right. Yeah. So is that a legitimate distinction? Elders have a persuasive authority power. The congregation has an effectual authority. Certainly the elders functionally execute what the church has decided. Right. And the elders lead the church in what it should decide. And what it should decide. And that is something. I mean, that's a, you know, it's not an arbitrary power that we're saying the elders have uh -huh. because Paul commands them to, to rule well. Uh -huh. So uh, what I would steer away from is saying it's just this kind of great idea to have elders because it works well. But when the people get sick of it, they should either get a new pastor or a new elder board. And I think Paul rejects that idea because in the idea of submitting to your elders – becomes metaphorical. Mm -hmm. And you want to avoid those being just recommendations. There has to be some teeth when Paul says, submit to your elders. Now, I was speaking to a, a brother not too long ago, and he was being advised by a couple of elders to do something that he disagreed with. He thought it was the wrong thing to do. And he, he said to me, Jonathan, what does it mean for me to, am I supposed to submit to them even though I think what they're asking me to do is, is the wrong thing. How would you have answered that, brother? Well, there's so many layers. Uh, hard that. not to know. I mean, you don't know the circumstances, but how do, how do church members think through these kinds of questions? What does it mean to submit to an elder, especially when you disagree? Well, I think it starts with having humility that you could be wrong uh -huh. and that these men have prayed together. They've studied together. They understand things together, and you should listen to them if they speak to you. It doesn't mean they're inerrant. It doesn't mean they could be wrong. Um, so I think you should definitely seek counsel from others as well if you just refuse to listen to your elders mm -hmm. and have some have the humility to have someone speak into your life. If it comes down to a matter of conscience, let's say baptism, you can you can say, brother, I can't do this, and you can go to another church. Um, but if it's a matter of clear sin in violation of Scripture, well, the elders have resources in their hand to deal with that as well. Mark, any thoughts on this? Well, it's just such a such an indeterminate situation. I mean... You know, there are many times in our carnal flesh when we reject authority, when we should submit to it. Mm -hmm. That's the nature of what sin is. So in one sense, you've just described every sin, mm -hmm. you know, committed by somebody who's a member of a church. Uh, directly or indirectly, the elders have asked you not to do that, have told you not to do that, and yet you're choosing to do that. Mm -hmm. 
There are also, though, matters of liberty that Scripture leaves us uh, that elders may, for practical reasons, have to make decisions on and may counsel members in a particular direction on. And there, I wouldn't think that elders would... Yeah, again, it would just depend on the particulars, whether an elders would say that was important or not important to follow their advice. But there's also the possible category of elders abusing their authority when they begin commanding things that are nowhere said or implied in Scripture. And then, if that's a one-off, you know, you remember that you give account individually before God ultimately. So you, you don't, no elder can finally take responsibility for you before the Lord in the way that you will finally give account and so you might need to disagree and disobey what they tell you. And if that becomes typical of them, if that becomes characteristic of them, then you as that Christian need to, as Hunter said, you need to leave and find a church where you would trust the elders. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of this elder-led issue comes from the same issues that came from Presbyterians in the 17th century, a fear of anarchy, a fear of insubordination, a fear of they just don't know enough to, to help me in the church. Um, yeah, I think... Paul says, submit to your elders and do it so it's a joy for them so they don't groan you know, in your submission to them, which says, yeah, you should submit to them. But it doesn't say you have no say in that relationship. You certainly do. Did, did the dissenting brethren or people of the Westminster Assembly in general give much thought to questions of abused authority? Sure. I mean, it's not something I how studied. Did, how do they deal with it? Abuse. Because I'll just say this, you know, sitting at nine marks. Abuse authority. Yeah, right. And, they, and they, a war broke out. <laughs> they cut off Lord's head. Yeah. Okay. So. Well, I'm okay. Here I am sitting at a nine marks desk, right? And we get lots of uh, uh, email, lots, a few emails from people who are coming out of uh, abusive situations, right? Um, sitting as an elder, you get people coming from churches, and now they're interviewing to, to to join our church again, coming out of abusive church situations. So it's it's not an uncommon situation. Uh, what would those brothers have said? What would you say to people coming out of these situations? Again, I want to know what ab- abusive means. I mean, they are, is a person is a person teaching too much reformed theology for someone? Mm-hmm. I mean, someone could consider that abusive because they have a different view of free will. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I guess I want to know what example we were grappling with. Mm-hmm. It would just so totally depend on the particulars. I mean, you could have that person that themselves being unhinged. You know, and overly sensitive, or you could have some them having been subject to some quite evil abuses of authority. It just you know, the whole gamut is. A lot of times, if you're an elder and you're interviewing someone, and you see a trail of churches they keep leaving because they keep continually be abused, there's a common denominator there. I remember one guy I interviewed for church membership who had been a member of maybe 20 or 30 some odd churches, and I made him go through every single <laughs> one and tell him in every case why he left, and he could remember them all. Wow. Uh, and you know. It was pretty clear that, yeah, I'm sure there was probably some abuse of authority in there somewhere, but there was also just a lot of persnicketiness and difficulty on his side. Well, now I was having a conversation with another brother who, very similar circumstances, and he kept, uh, continued to invoke the authority of Scripture over and against the authority of, of, of a church. How, how do you put those two things together? I mean, isn't Scripture our final authority? Definitely. Sure. Okay. Well, if Scripture, I think Scripture is telling me one thing, and. How do I put that? To, how do I think through practically just average member with, with, with the authority of a church? I think you join a local church where you trust the elders, where what you're hearing taught from the front seems to line up with what you think is taught in Scripture, where you see the through the Spirit evident in the individual's lives and in the lives of the congregation as a whole, so that you can trust them. You join in the humility of knowing that you don't know everything yourself, that you need to be instructed, that you uh-huh. need to be taught, that Jesus actually intended you not to follow him uh-huh. alone. Jesus actually intended you to follow him in concert with others and under the authority of elders that his word tells you to submit to. So if you don't bring that kind of humility to the table, you can't be a member of a church in the way the New Testament calls you to. It's very hard. You're, we're walking a lonely path, a, a path that is unique and may not be a genuinely Christian path. You may be self-deceived like the adulterer in 1 Corinthians 5. Um, yeah, it's, it's a hard thing to try to do it yourself. That's not how Jesus, that's not what he calls us to do. And I mean, prayerfully consider your own your own pride in that issue. I mean, when, when Paul says to the Thessalonians, respect your elders, he's not saying respect insofar as it's convenient to you. I mean, it seems like Paul's saying respect them. Mm-hmm. So I think you better be very clear on where the disagreement is and have some robust discussions um, and have the humility to see if my entire elder board thinks I'm wrong here, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe I am wrong. You may not be. 
Um, but if you find yourself continually critical of the teachers in your church, which is something many people struggle with, um, then maybe you should pray, pray through those passages of Scripture that say, submit your, to your leaders, respect and them. Thinking about this makes what Luther did all the more amazing. You know, that he withstood all of the authority mm-hmm. of the people in the church, uh, authority from the past in terms of writings, because he thought he saw something in Scripture so clearly. But I think we have to realize those kind of moments have to be unusual. Mm-hmm. Well, it's almost like we're all trying to relive that moment. We, th- yeah. we, we think we're going we're gonna to do the same thing. And I hope I never need to relive that moment. I mean, how, how often do we invoke Luther's yeah. example, though? Yeah. As if we're all Here I stand. I will go to see this movie. <laughs> well, all right. Yeah, it's just really not the same kind of thing, but yeah. Right. Well, I've just known such growth in my own life when I've submitted to the elders over me um, spiritually, and I, I find that the Lord, in His mercy and strange wisdom, seems to give me more authority in the <clears throat> body when I'm submitting to those He's placed over me. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, is is Elder authority then is saying in relation to, to scripture, a little bit like parental authority as a child, in that ordinarily I am certainly as a child to obey my parents, right? Not over and against scripture. If they ask me to do something that's over and against scripture, I, I disobey my parents, right? But certainly God has established parents over me. Is, is there a similar relationship there? The... Puritans did use an example of um, – it, it's completely contextual, but and parents making a decision for their daughter to wed someone, uh-huh. arrange marriage, um, which in those circumstances, the daughter, which should probably respect her parents' decision in that matter. But they're also very clear. The daughter, it's not – it can't be done unless she agrees and wants to do it as well. But for her to say no to her parents and reject them completely would be to disavow their wisdom in making decisions for her and to help her. And that's an analogy they would use. I mean, so they invoke it. that comparison. Yeah, they do. But they don't. But they don't. I would, you can't use that example today because we don't have a range yeah, of marriages right, and yeah. so forth. I would think that the elders' authority one. This analogy would be that I don't understand myself to be in sin when I withdraw from one church to go to another. I may be, but I may well not be. Yeah, uh, I may have a, a fairly. You know, light reason, like I perceive I'll grow better as a Christian over at this other church because of relationships I have or because of the way I respond to the teaching or, or whatever it is. Now, while that could be a mask for sin or me not dealing with things, that's certainly possible. It could be fine in this limited and fallen world where we live through it quickly. You know, it may be that, yeah, okay, fine, do that now. Whereas were I to try to withdraw myself as a minor from the authority parents of my parents. cannot do yeah, that would that would be a, a whole other matter. So, Mark, where do you get from Scripture the idea that elders can make lots of decisions um, without the people involved in the big decisions like a budget or excommunication or discipline really need to be brought to the people? Oh, but pick any one of those because they all feel a little bit different. Just yeah. pick any one of those. Just there's minor decisions elders have to make on a day-to-day basis that the people you don't run to the people yeah. with. Like pick one as an example. Um, H- hiring uh, a pastoral assistant. Buying a Xerox copier. Yeah. Uh, it'll depend on the size of your church, obviously. If you're in a small church, everybody may want to be involved. You know, I've seen that happen. Uh, but the larger the church is, the more people for it to operate have to second responsibilities to individuals. They have to trust them with things so that when they have their time all together, their time is focused on the most important thing. So in our members' meetings, most of our time is taken up with members being, you know, transferred or occasionally excommunicated and mainly with members being brought in. But you don't think you've acted disorderly if you buy a copier without checking with the church? Could be, depending on the order of the church. If your church is used to, you know, it's 30 people, and you're used to having a members meeting around which refrigerator we're going to replace the current one with, then it could be kind of disruptive and disorderly for you just to go ahead and buy it yourself. But the Bible allows you to make that decision. Oh, yeah, all that kind of stuff is well within the, the freedom of a local congregation to decide what's the best way to order our life together. And I would certainly discourage churches from yeah. trying to get involved in that level of detail. As a whole, as a congregation, second those things to individuals and move on. What about that issue of satellite churches where a pastor makes a decision that affects congregations 100 miles away? Well, that seems to me just to return us to the historical discussions that they were having in the 1640s about the episcopacy. You know, can one man, does God intend for one, one man to rule uh, multiple congregations? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I think that's nowhere envisioned in the New Testament. Um, and because of the nature of pastoral authority um, and how there is uh, – it's in, it's in the context of teaching and relationship, 
there may be a governor, an effective governor, on the size of a church, though we can debate that exactly. I think there would have to be a, uh, a prohibition in anything that absolutely prohibits then that pastor from forming relationships with those over whom he's supposed to have authority. One of the concerns they had, obviously, about the bishops was ruling, and te- they believed the Bible taught ruling and teaching were coextensive. Mm. And the moment you have a bishop, he rules without Where teaching. Teach. Or, conversely, you can have someone who teach, they really can't rule because he doesn't know the people he's teaching. Well, in the other place, this seems to be relevant to, to, to contemporary conversations, and even even in the, the weediest of weeds that we got into, as, as you, were, you were moaning about that, Mark, is... Uh, the question of who has the keys and where are they located, and if they're located in the elders, alone, alone, and the sort of struct those are the structures of the church, then, I, then it seems like I can have a multi-site well, the, congregation. And right? the, and the, Whereas the, if, if they're if they're located in the congregation or the congregation with the elders, yeah. then it does seem like a multi-site or certainly an episcopal structure is is out of bounds. Well, Episcopalians, it, well, it's an anachronistic word used for this period, but uh, they believe the bishop alone had the keys. He was the church. Uh-huh. Um, so if he you had really, to confirm, he had to excommunicate where yeah, there would be an excommunicate. Like everything had to be approved by him. So if you think the Bible says all church power has been given to you, well, go, I guess, and do multi-site. Yeah. But what's striking to me is how careful these guys were in thinking it through at this level, and so much of the, the contemporary conversations aren't even yeah. going, well, scratching the surface. Again, just to, to, to favor our generation... These guys in this conversation had the fate of a nation hanging on them. Yeah. You know, in a way, it's every local church and 17 people in the church who care about these issues. Yeah. It just it just seems like a whole different issue. Now, in fact, all of us are really accountable before Christ for what he said in his word. And these th- these decisions affect the welfare of people made in his image, uh, sheep that have been committed to our care. So we should care a lot. But I just understand historically why there was. Well, and the Congregationalists of the Westminster Assembly, on one level, they saw one of the problems in England was because they had a national church bound together nationally. And that's what the Presbyterians wanted. That's what we have today, a Presbyterian church in America, a national Presbyterian church. And they just saw that as replacing one national church for another one that was unworkable and untenable and against Scripture. Last last question. How do you guys and how much do you guys teach your congregations about these matters, about polity? What do you say to them? What do you, what do you say to them about authority? I mean, how much should listeners, if they're pastors, be teaching their churches this stuff and how often? I think you have to teach them your job description because they have to know how to replace you or how to fire you if you need to be. How to pray for you and encourage you if you are doing your job. That They need to know those things. So when, it come, when I come across it in the text, I'm quite happy to take out opportunity for application to elders and to preachers and for people to understand that. Yeah. Do you teach about congregationalism? Sure. Some. I think the Bible teaches about it. But when you get there, you teach on it. How often are you talking about these things? Well, certainly Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, so I, teach, I teach on it. But anytime I got to an issue of church order, and Paul complains when a church is behaving disorderly, um, I think that's because Paul sees value in a well-ordered church. Congregations will probably pop up in one of my applications once every two to three months, maybe. Okay. Mem- Do you think more? I mean, that's probably about... That sounds right. Yeah. Membership classes? Sure. Oh, well, then certainly when you're not talking about the entire gathered congregation, we have systems set up to teach people this. Uh-huh. So when you come in and join our church, you have to take six classes, and congregationalism should be clearly present in one or two of those classes, and there'll be opportunity for Q&A. Uh, brother, thank you so much for your time. Any final comments? Hunter, thank you for your excellent dissertation. Uh, as a guy who's, you know, worked some in the late 1500s, early 1600s, and who lo- loves the Westminster Confession, uh, this was just fascinating to read. Uh, so, as somebody who, who all those little Puritan paperbacks that Banner publishes, those guys are actually living names to me. I can see them walking around Cambridge. Yeah. Uh, this was just fun to read and good, careful theological work. And the only thing I'd add to that is, if you read those Puritan paperbacks, um, which are hugely edifying and encouraging, remember it's the same guys, the same Jeremiah Burroughs who wrote. Where Drew uh, of Christian Contentment, that spent hours debating these issues. I mean, the same mind that produced William that Bridge. William Bridge, um, lifting up for the downcast. John I mean, Owen. John Owen. I mean, the same mind that produced these wonderful texts that we have all read and been encouraged by, had the humility to realize they also thought about the church to that level. And it was that important to them. And maybe we can learn something from them. Why are the, the Congregationalist writers so disproportionately represented? In things that we have today, because people often will think of the Puritans as Presbyterians, but when you start looking at the writings that are done, Sibs, 
not at all a Presbyterian, kind of a, what an, I don't know, Episcopalian, Anglican, Bunyan, a Baptist, maybe all these guys I just mentioned, Congregationalists. Maybe they're, they're church preaching more than they were complaining. Well, it was true in the 1640s and 50s, more practical works by the Congregationalists came out than the Presbyterians. Hmm. And the Presbyterians read their practical works. So, and they're you know these guys were friends as well. I mean, they go out for a beer after debating all day at the Westminster Assembly. So, well, there you just lost their Southern Baptist <laughs> listeners. Thanks, Hunter. The last sixty seconds uh, there was. We edited it out. That's all they could drink actually at the Westminster Assembly because the water was so dangerous in London. How's that? Blending on that note. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, brother. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, friends, for listening to this Nine Marks audio message. We encourage you to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more audio messages and other free resources, we invite you to visit us online at www.ninemarks.org or call us toll-free at 1-888-543-1030. Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches.